Mike and Jessica. Heels. Michelle, we're in the middle of a dogfight out here. <laughs> well, that's your own fault. Okay, we got, we're doing some weird new audio. So i got to tweak a few things. Okay. Uh, how do we sound? Um, It's not perfect. You're not going to like it. What? You're not going to love it. Okay, hold on. I don't care, but you're funny. Oh, maybe we got to turn this up. Okay. <clears throat> Why is it too, is it staticky or not loud enough? Um, it's just a little tinny, kind of like you're in a barrel a little bit. Maybe you can move the mic closer or something, I don't know. How about that? That's, well. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's just Mike's voice. I think we'll be okay. That's actually better, whatever you do. Okay. All right, Michelle, so we're here here for episode four, the pretend war on Fargo, West Coast Project. Yep. Michelle, we have a surprise guest tonight. Who? Uh, Your daughter. Jack. Jack (laughs) and Jack and Bailey. Cool. Although Bailey never says much. Yeah, she's, she's the, you know, quiet top. Michelle, did you watch my little uh, Twitter link to the Kill the King and Become the King about how, who Mort was? I don't think I saw it, Mike. Well, thanks for staying on top I'm of not, that, Michelle. Do I follow you on Twitter? <laughs> Maybe I didn't know. I didn't see it, I don't think. No, I didn't. Tell me. Okay, we'll get to it in this episode, but there's a part of the episode where... Uh, Loy says send 200 of the 300 guns to Mort Mortensen or somebody. Right, right. And we we do you remember who that was and from um, from previous episodes of Fargo? From another season. No, the, the name was familiar, and I actually meant to look that up now that you said it, but I did not. No. I think it's episode two or season two, episode four, where he's in the movie theater and Dodd um, Dodd kills him. I'm trying to remember. I'm Dodd Gerhardt. He killed... Mort kills Papa Gerhardt, and Dodd comes in with the next level of Gerhardt's, and he kills this guy, Mort. Okay. Anyway, Michelle, what did you think of the pretend war? You know, I thought this was an extremely creepy episode, didn't you think? It had, like, a different uh, feel to it almost than any of the other Fargo episodes we've ever seen I don't know I don't, I don't know if maybe it's um, just that I've got so much going on in my own life right now and I'm kind of easily creeped out or if it's the fact that this was really creepy because it really felt creepy I see I think it's following the pattern of Fargo where these where these otherworldly things come into play like um, like Malvo being able to escape the basement when he should have no way out, or like that spaceship, or the the fish NATO. Yeah, I mean, I hear you, and there's a lot of things like that, but this had a uh, not not levitating um, what like corpses and stuff like that. This was really kind of over the top. I think Jack's. I think Jack's possessed by something. Yeah, this is gonna annoy you to death. This, this is really. He'll come down. He'll come down in a minute. Um. See. Yep. You did. <laughs> also, I accidentally read a piece of a review 
that called this like a setup episode. It's almost like the reviewer was disappointed. I clicked off the review. I didn't mean to even catch that, but I didn't get that really at all. It's like people want every single episode to just be full of gunfights or whatever. And I think we have to have episodes that tell the story. I think it's really short-sighted of people. And these are people who are much more <laughs> educated than I am on, on this kind of thing. But they, you know, they just... I like the story part. And I felt like we got a lot of story in this. What do you think? Yeah, I like I like the deep stuff. I like the stuff that's not really obvious gunfight stuff, like the Paul Moraine in the bowling alley. The, exactly. The, the religious, where it makes you think about what life really means and what happens and how do people keep track of like who should get revenge and stuff. I mean, I I agree that that the story part is um, that's the interesting stuff to me. I mean, this has been great so far. Okay, like we are. Next week, we will be halfway through. Halfway through, well, I think there's 11 episodes, but still. I mean, we're a good chunk into this, and I, I know I said it on our first podcast, our first episode this season. I was not really looking forward to this one. The content seemed like it might be something that just wasn't in my my wheelhouse. I mean, you know, the gangs and of, of different times set up and set so far back. This has been really really good I, I just think so far it's been great yeah I like it too but I think it's on a par with other seasons I don't think it's any better or worse really than other but I like it I like it a lot but I no, like Fargo I, a no. lot yeah. I'll, I'll completely agree with that I don't think it's necessarily better than other seasons I really love the Molly Salverson season with uh, what's his name uh, Colin Hanks well, him, but uh, Malvo. Oh yeah. Billy Bob. Billy Bob. <laughs> yeah. Jessica, yeah, have yeah. you watched other episodes, ever, other seasons of Fargo? No, I've never seen Fargo. Okay. Uh, I'm glad we invited Jessica yeah. to be part of this. <laughs> <laughs> Did you um, not ever see the movie, Jessica? No. The movie Fargo. Okay. Um, so, Michelle, what did you think? Well, uh, we can start now. That's all I had really for any prelude notes. But um, okay. I guess I'll let you just start, and then we can talk about this guy on the stairway. Yeah, okay. We start with the true events disclaimer that we see in all of them, but we also see that there's a Christmas tree. So we know that roughly a month's passed, because last episode we were at Thanksgiving. We ended with, like, the Thanksgiving prayer. So we know that about a month has gone by since our last episode. We start in the Smutney house, and we see the mortuary paraphernalia, which is so creepy by itself, and the drip drip. Does anybody have any take? Have you read anything, or do you have any take on what this drip drip that was through this whole episode? No, and screaming in the back. If you have, yes. if you have a closed caption, you can see screaming in the background as a note. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we focus in on Ethel Rita, and she's writing in her room. She hears something in the hallway. It's late at night, it's, or nighttime. I don't know how late it is. She goes, and she, like, opens her door like she's kind of scared, and she sees a corpse sitting at the top of the stairs who turns and looks at her, and then she closes the door and stands against it gasping. I was waiting on her to wake up or something. 
but she did. Okay, no, it's so. something she really saw. And they called him the Iceman. Like, her, what's her mom's name? Debrell. Debrell. She called him the Iceman at some other point earlier in the season. And he looks like an Iceman. He's got, like, a frostbitten nose. His nose is kind of missing, and his fingers are all gnarled, and his face is all frozen. Okay, I, I don't remember her calling anybody. Okay, that's... Yeah, Okay. All right, so let's get Jessica in here. So, Jessica, do you... So, one other thing that we heard in this season earlier is that houses aren't haunted, right? People are haunted. Right. So, do you believe... Do you think there's ghosts, um, Jessica? Wow, forgetting my name again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, that's so loaded. Knee-jerk, short answer, yes. But, like, you know, like sitting in the hallway... When you open your door, ghosts or different kind of ghosts? Well, I don't know. I only know my ghosts that I've experienced. So. Okay, so that's, there's a good point. Are all ghosts, are ghosts bad or are ghosts good? Or are some good and some bad? Definitely some good and some bad. Definitely. So, Michelle, what do you think about this guy? He was good, bad, indifferent, what? Well, I mean, he, this guy wasn't doing anything, but he was scary. Um... It almost felt like he was Grim Reaper-ish, though, in the other scene that we see with him. So, I, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know. I wouldn't want to see him in my hallway. I'll tell you that. So, Jessica, these people live above a mortuary. And their house, their normal house is above, and the mortuary is in the basement. And this guy, <clears throat> in the beginning of this episode, he crawls up, he's, climbs up the stairs, and he's at the top of the stairs. And this girl who lives in the house hears it and opens the door and he's right there at the top stair. Okay. And she looks at him and like, oh! And she shuts the door and then he just, he goes down the stairs, right? Michelle, you can hear him clomping back downstairs. Yes, you can hear him like walking. And the the thing about it is, is that it's not even like she doesn't run tell her mom and dad. She doesn't do anything. She's she's a high school uh, girl, probably 15 or so, wouldn't you say, Mike? I'm yeah. probably told. Us. And, um, it was like, I mean, she was scared, but it wasn't even a big deal. I mean, it wasn't a big deal enough to get her parents involved or anything like that. So it's probably not the first time she had she had seen the Iceman. Well, that's why I think Dubrell had spoken of this Iceman before. And then, then Ethel Rita's just like, oh, yeah, there's the Iceman. Because she didn't seem terribly scared of him. She was like, it was a little scary. But she didn't, like you said, she didn't even tell her mom, like, oh, my God, there's a guy in the basement. It's like we all know that guy's in the basement, and he, he he appeared again. Yeah, yeah, it was like like nothing, just like it was a common thing. All, even though she did, she was startled by it and didn't like it. You could tell. Yeah. So do you think um, this was the guy, the strange man in the street that we saw in episode one? Oh, maybe. It has to be. It has maybe. to be. Maybe. Okay, I didn't even think about that. Okay, then we see the divided screen with. Uh, Zelmar and Swanee in a room, and Swanee is still sick. She is vomiting, vomiting, vomiting. And Zelmar's holding up the bills, the dollar bills, or whatever denomination they are, that are covered in Swanee's vomit, where she vomited on them. In this divided screen, we also see Satchel in his bed, staring up at the ceiling, presumably, like, waiting for Rabbi to come back. That's just what I thought when I saw him. We see Gatano smoking, his face shadowed by, like, the flame of a lighter. Lots of the scenes we see in this, um, 
are like flames and stuff, which of course is, uh, you know, showing us what's coming. And we see a, a truck full of oranges, and I actually thought it was tomatoes at first, going down, because I'm from Tennessee, so we're not, you know, tomato. Um, going down the road, and so we see all of that in that little divided screen thing that we do. And then we actually, like, start in on this scene where we see the fire across the road as they're driving down the road. Now, this is uh, Calamita and, and a driver. Right. And, yeah, and so fire goes across the road, and they can't. They have to stop. And then when they stop, you can tell that Calamita pauses for a second and then he's like back up back up and then the fire's behind the truck too and, it, and it's surrounding the truck and we see the whole cannon clan come pull the driver out and this driver what was he thinking he like punches or smacks one of these people in the face and then he yeah takes- the fire the fire circle was really weak to me because first of all they they stop as you would, if you're driving down the road, you see a fire, you stop, like, okay, it might be a wreck, I don't want to smash into it. But as soon as you see it, like, circle back behind you and then threatening guys walk through the fire, you just jam your foot down and either in reverse forward, go through that fire and get away. You could drive through that fire. They walked through it. Well, right? it, it was fake. It was fake because they walked through it and then the one guy who walks off the, out of the car, the, the henchman... He gets caught up in the fire and he burns up and gets killed by the fire. It, it was a weak. It was it was supposed to be super dramatic, but it was weak to me. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't know. I definitely wouldn't think to go through a fire. I wouldn't know how how much of the road was on fire. But I mean, I think I would have before. I would have just sat there knowing what was coming because when they saw the cannon clan, um, I would have probably taken my chances with the fire. Yeah, just fire. I mean, you know, you don't know what's ahead of you, maybe, because it blinds you, but you know you came through it from the back, if you just put it in reverse. Well, yeah, but that's when they pulled the, the, the fire. Well, true, true. Yeah, you mean it can't be that much behind Right, it's just yeah. flames. Just drive through it. But, I mean, it could be. What if they had put some kind of uh, lighter fluid for half a mile down the road? I don't know. I don't know. But they... So, Michelle, I can tell you're an amateur pyromaniac. You cannot put a half mile of fire on a road like that. Like that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, um, Calamity gets out of the car and he's like sassing them in Italian, right? Like really ugly. And he's, the, the guy, who was it? Which one of the cannon guys was it? I don't remember. Was it? I don't know. It doesn't matter. But he holds the gun to his face or toward him, and then he, like, takes it behind him. He doesn't even look, and he, like, gets it scalding hot and then burns burns a, a gun tip into Calamia's. Yeah, it gives him the Ronnie from the shield s'mores face treatment. Burns, yep. a, burns a circle in his cheek. Yep. And then they get in his truck and drive off, leaving him there. And then we see the Fargo word come up with the cool flames in it, and that's how we start this episode. Okay, then we see Dr. Senator, and he's sipping coffee and spuds, and Ibal comes in, 
and walks through the can and clan there. That kind of like they're going to stop him or something, but he walks through them. He sits at the table, and then he tells them some story about what it means to be an American and American values, and he goes into all that. And um, he says that he realizes that to be an American is to pretend. And then he says, but we don't pretend to be at peace when we're at war. Then he asks Dr. Senator, he goes, are we at war? And Dr. Senator sits there and looks at him, he goes, well, we're trying real hard. So, what do you think about that? Right, it's what's real and what's pretend. So, first of all, Michelle, I think we should use the autocorrect names for these characters. So, Ibal Violante is eBay Violence, if I try to type it. So, I'm I'm going to call him eBay Violence, and... uh, What's the other guy? Constant, constant uh, calamity. That's funny. That's just good enough on its own. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, eBay, eBay, eBay violence understands money. That's clear. Family, I can get that. But he has trouble with American cultural values. He doesn't well, he understand it. Yeah, well, it, it's not even they don't understand him. He kind of mocks them. You know, he says that it's all just pretend. And it kind of goes back to what... Um, what Louis said at the beginning. Do you remember what he said? He said, what does everybody want when he was sitting in the banker's office? He said, they don't want to be rich. They want to appear rich. So that seems to be like the whole, you know, clan thing. The whole canon clan kind of ideals is that it's just pretend. And now they're pretending to be at peace when they're really at war. Right. So, Ibal gets really defensive, and he's talking about the truck robbery and how, how come you killed one of our men. And Dr. Sen- Senator says, well, you tried to shoot Lemuel. And this is what those dogs might. I can't. Who knows? They may have comments on this episode. They, they might. Do they have their own TV uh, subscription? Um, no. All right, now they're going to be happy. Yeah. No, are you happy, Jack? Are you happy, Jack? Yeah, you're gonna not bark. <laughs> They're just gonna do that the whole time. <laughs> That's a different dog. Oh, it's a different dog. Where? We can't control him. Oh, oh. barking out there. It's a ghost dog. Outside your fence. Who is it? All right, so Michelle, there's there. They finally come. These two uh, consigliere's agree that there's a misunderstanding um, and that and uh, um, Dr. Senator starts to understand that eBay eBay violence didn't know about this whole plan. Well, right, right. Ebal's shocked. He knows nothing about about the attempted shooting of Lemuel or that um, or the Zelmar Swanee robbery either. Right, and, and, the, and the important thing is that Dr. Senator sees him not knowing and goes, oh, you didn't know this. This is news to you. Right, which makes him seem weak, I think, don't you? No, I think it clears, I think it settles things. Oh, I disagree. Well, it makes the Italians seem disorganized, for sure. Well, right, right. And how can he trust what he's getting from Ebal if Ebal doesn't even know what's going on? I think it makes him look really out of the loop. So, I thought that was kind of telling. Okay, I don't know. So I then, think these guys. I think these guys are a settling force. 
they're like a they're like a um, buffer for the for the stupid stupidity and the violence of the families. Yeah, I they're would like agree. I think they're a, they're a they're a layer of common sense on top of things. Well, yeah, they're they're like the older, wiser people, and 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 the more calm, yes, the the soothers of the of the groups, but if. One of them has something going on that they don't even know what's going on. I think it looks really bad, and I think it's scary even probably to the other group because they don't even know what they're getting. And you're right. It does show that they are divided. Right. Okay, so the cannons bring the truck in to their warehouse, and uh, in addition to the oranges, we have 300 semi-automatic weapons as the little drummer boy plays solemnly in the background. That was pretty cool. Dr. Senator is discussing with Louis, with Louis the conversation he had with Ebal, and they wonder who's in charge now. And Louis's just mad. He's like, it doesn't matter. He's like, if they come to my family again, we're gonna kill them. And then, Lloyd's pretty smart. He's pretty smart. He surmises that the robbery was just two Bonnies, and they're just going to buy their time, you know, hang around and let them kind of flush them flush themselves out. How do you think Lloyd knew? Well, they talk about it. They talk about what, maybe this was a plan to, like, divert what they were really trying to do. They hired these two um they hired these other factions to rob the place and cause, you know, to to set us off in a different direction, and that's where Lois says, "No, nobody's dumb. And, nobody can be dumb and smart at the same time." Right. Yeah, and it's that, it's that. interesting to me, Michelle, how that dilemma comes up in real life. Like, how can people that are really smart be sometimes so dumb? How can it really does happen in real life a lot where you can't be dumb and smart at the same time? That really kind of does happen sometimes in real life. Well, with individuals though, but maybe not with groups as much, right? Because I think individually people could do that easier than they can because you have people like Ebal and Dr. Senator and stuff like that, hopefully, in your group that's going to kind of keep the peace and the keep things running smoothly. Yeah, they're the voices of reason. They 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 make everybody say, wait, wait a second, let's look at this a little bit more closely and let's try to dig down and see why this really happened. And then we go to Orietta and Josto. They're having some fun. And then when they get done with their fun, they then have a conversation. All right, Jessica, just so your mom breezes over all these hard things to talk about, like swear words and sex scenes. <laughs> so this, this, this woman named Orietta is a, is a nurse, and she's like, I think she's the devil in this show. Cause she's, wait, wait, what else do you think about her? Oh, and I love her. Yeah. I want her to be my girlfriend. She's and this, the hot devil. And yeah, and this scene makes me like even more. Want. <laughs> Last week too, but this one is even more. La, so la 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 la. I'm so, not she like poison. She's like at this Munchausen's like type of personality where she like, oh, you're in pain. I'll take you out of pain. And she like kills people. Okay. And she's um and she misinterprets or purposely interprets messages like. My dad's in pain. Please take care of him. Oh, I'll take care of him. (laughs) Wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, she's in this sex scene with one of these criminals, and 
Um, and Michelle, did you notice how they were in their feet were at the pillow end of the bed and their heads or his head anyway was at the foot of the bed? It was like reversed. Huh? It was rever it was like in the it was awkward. It was un well, it was unnatural first of all cuz she's they're doing like the auto asphyxiation sex. Okay. Trick. It's as awkward as this conversation, but okay. <laughs> as I talk to your daughter in front of you about. But but her her feet were behind her, her his feet were at the pillow and his head was at the foot of the bed. They were backwards on the bed. She's refusing to discuss this. She's I not going to talk I, about it. I mean, I can I can discuss it, but it's just not that unusual to me. I don't. Oh, okay. Now I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, that's how you do it. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so. <laughs> no, I mean it's just. I mean, does, does it have to be like with your head at the head of the bed? Is that? Um, well, when you lay in a bed, don't you put your head on a pillow? Well, yeah. Before okay. okay. Let's break this down. I'm sorry, we have to get it so graphic. When you before you get into the auto asphyxiation part, don't you just lay on the bed normally first? Like, okay, baby, let's make out and whatever. Well, this you, isn't auto asphyxiation. First of all, this is something else, and it's something that I mean, this is 1950. It just completely messed up my whole perception of what went on in 1950, and. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't have your head on a pillow with that, I wouldn't think. I would think the pillow might cause that. Michelle, you sound a little too knowledgeable of this. No, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> anyway, she's choking him. She's, like, sitting sitting on him, straddling him, and they're facing freaking backwards. And they have both good time, so. Yes, they do. Okay, well, glad we talked about that. Okay. Um... And then she starts talking about Istanbul, and he starts talking about Nemesis. They're having, like, these two completely separate conversations. She's, like, all, you know, girly and, um, you know, Istanbul, even the word. Even the word sounds, what, romantic or something. He's like, yeah, I got people to kill, lady. You know? And just, yeah, wind in your hair and travel. Come on, it'll be great. Really? Right. Bailey wants to do it. Look. <laughs> Bailey, it's okay. So then, okay, okay. Then Josto mentions that he could kill Dr. Harvard. And did you see Orietta's face when that happened? No, what was she doing? No, she's like, like, doing that look back and forth, you know, kind of like, hmm, okay, maybe I can make that happen. Because, Jessica, you don't know, but Josto mentioned about his father being in pain. And um, Orietta said, I shall attend him faithfully until the Lord arrives. And then she went in there and like, put some poison in his IV and held him down until he died, you know? So, Such I mean... Kevorkian. Um, well, but with Kevorkian, the people wanted to die. Scott was, like, calling her... What did he call her? Do you remember, Mike? What did he call her when? Uh, when she was killing him, Josto's father. He called her something. He was yelling at Oh, murderous. Time. Murderous, murderous, yeah. He didn't want to die, so. Hmm. But it was funny that... That it was obviously just like this wild and lewd action. And then 
he makes a comment. He says something. He says, I think, what does he say? Like balls or something like that? I mean, it was kind of off color, but it wasn't like, you know. And, I mean, she likes, she like pops him and scolds him. And, you know, we fly high in this house, mister. We're not going to have this room. Well, I thought he smacked her on the butt. And she's like, don't be rude. But she just, like, was sitting, having sex with him and auto asphyxiating him and getting off on it and she's he smacks her on the bottom and she goes he smacks her on the bottom and she goes don't be rude we fly high in this house we fly high in this house mister yeah and and he's and he's just like he he accepts that is what was so funny is that he accepts these admonishments and like drops his head and stuff you know well he's baffled she's like four levels above him so michelle is is Arietta gathering intel. Does she really even care, or does she just like him? What's she doing? Why, why is she doing this with this Josto? I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea. Um, so a month has gone by, and they've went from like the hand job in the car to this, and so something's went on. Uh, I I don't understand her. Okay. He's engaged, and this is not going to be his wife. He's not engaged. He's engaged. He's political. He's engaged to the mayor's daughter because he can get political favors from the mayor. He's, he doesn't give a shit about that. It doesn't matter. Oh my gosh, he's. The point is, he's engaged to be married. He's going to be married. I mean, he's betrothed, and she's not going to be his wife. But she's. Like trying to hold the house up to some kind of moral code or standard or something. I don't. I don't get it. Yeah, the the engagement to the other woman it means zero to Josto. It's just a political ploy. The, but it what it means to Orietta is that she's not going to be his wife. It might not mean anything to him emotionally. So what though? So what? She's not going to be his wife. So what? She's not going to be his wife. She's. Um, having kinky sex with him on the bed. So what? And, and she won't let him even, you know, say a word or smack her on the butt because she's too prim and proper. It's just everything about the situation is off. How how do you be prim and proper? He 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 goes to the mirror and he looks at his neck and he goes, oh, you left a mark. And she's like standing back there and she kind of curls her shoulders in her and goes. I'm sure I have no idea what you mean. And she's all, like, coy and everything. And it just... Everything about her is, like, one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah, she definitely doesn't want him to be rude. See, Jessica wrote that right there. No, (laughs) it is. It's in the notes. (laughs) We're showing... Jessica wants to be a podcaster, and we're kind of showing her how we do this. So I'm really glad she's participating in this. But um, that's literally what I wrote. She doesn't want him to be rude. And then also, I know Ethel Reed is going to come in. You're going to talk about that, Michelle. But I think Orietta is upset that Josto leaves too quickly. Like, no, no, don't leave. I'm, you know, like you're my boyfriend, and I don't want you to leave. She's yeah, upset she's that he leaves. She's what? She's upset that he leaves before yeah, she's ready is. for him to leave. So what does she see in him? What? Look, with all due respect, what does anybody see in him? He no, literally. What? What do you think a, she sees? What? He's either a tool for some nefarious scheme she's involved in, or she likes him, just like she's attracted to him. I think she's attracted to him. 
Maybe. I don't know. Doesn't don't she, know. as a woman, where you saw this, don't you think she's attracted to him? Don't I, leave. I, don't leave because she's here. She's attracted to him. Okay. She's attracted to him, but I don't know why. I don't know if she's attracted to him because she's just likes him for some reason. I don't know if she's attracted to him because it is part of something evil that she's doing or that she needs or something. He's a boob. And he shows himself to be like a boob in this one. And Jessica, he's so funny. He looks just like um, Michael Scott. He looks like Michael Scott with a mustache. Oh, but she was like that before Michelle last episode where she was like, oh, you silly goose. You came here and I know you're like interested in me because here you are following me, stalking me. She's, she likes it. I think she genuinely likes him. I don't think it's a ploy on her part to like pretend that she likes him. I think she really likes him. How, do, how can you tell? What on earth Because you she's that? upset when he leaves. She's like teasing around with him. She's... Okay, in this sex scene, even if it's a little graphic, she seems like she's happy in the sex scene. It's not him. It's not just him. Like last week, this she is happy too. Right? Yeah, yeah but that... Uh, I don't think that means you have to like somebody. All right. Well, we don't have to hang on it. So Etherita comes over. Yeah. Okay, so Josto goes to leave, and as he's opening the door, Etherita's there, and she's about to knock on the door. Josto leaves, and Orietta is trying to get him to stay, and then blames Ethelreda for him leaving. And she's, like, really ugly to her, which was funny. And then, okay, what was this about? Then she's, see, I don't even know if she's human, your girlfriend, and I hate to talk so bad about her, but something's off. Something's off. Do you think Malvo was human? No. Do you think VM Varga was human? No. Do you think Paul Moraine? I don't know about that one. I don't know. Do you think uh, Citizen Z, when he when he got his head chopped off or whatever, remember he got his he got shot and then he melted or something? Remember all these all these religious characters are really they're really not human. They're superhuman or subhuman. Well, Orianna's not a religious character though. I don't know about that. I I, I would call Malvo religious, like a like a like a demon, a devil. I don't... Okay, we're just using the word different then, but I don't... I, I just don't know if if she's human, because okay, right here she is blaming Ethelreda that he left, and then Ethelreda's like, you know, I, I need a job, do you still want me to clean, my family needs money, we really need it, and then she softens toward her. It's like she looks at her and she says, oh, oh, Sagittarius... I didn't recognize you in the dark hallway. How do you not recognize her? It's not, First of all, it's not dark. It's the middle of the day. And second of all, how, I mean, what a weird thing to say. I just thought that was weird. So anyway, Ethel Rita, she needs the job, and she keeps on about it. She's like, I can do it right now. I can do this. And so Oriana likes her gumption and lets her in the door. And... Um, Okay, so then Ethelreda talks about how it's going to be a three-hour job and she's going to need a dollar for it. And Orietta calls her a capitalist for say It's just funny. So, something else. Something else. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, right? But 
she's reading about the kings of Egypt, the book, right? Did you notice that? Yeah. And when she picked up the book to put it away, she's like, oh, I've got to pick up, I've got to clean up. It was dusty, so dusty. She, like, dusted off like like, like you dust off a ceiling fan you hadn't dusted in a month. Now, how is she reading a book that's dusty? I don't know. The note and, I took about this was um, how Orietta confuses King... And I put confuses. Maybe that was my interpretation, but King dead King Tut living in a tomb, like dead versus living. Like, right. if you're dead, you don't live in a tomb. You're just in a tomb. Well, in a, in a pyramid, she says. Inside okay. a pyramid, And yeah. then this guy in the basement on the stairs, you would probably call him dead. He's some sort of zombie or ghoul of some kind, but he's living there, but he's dead. Like, he's existing there. That, yeah. That made a... That, I made an analogy with this King Tut line that she says. Well, right, because, see, he's dead, and Orietta says he's living in a pyramid, and I think she might be dead or something. No kidding, because, I mean, some, there's something, because the Dusty book, the, um, I don't know. I don't know, I'm really... I'm not convinced of anything else. But anyway, Ethelred is taking notes of all that needs to be done. And so then we go outside, and Rabbi catches Josto and tells him about Calamita and everything that happened and him trying to shoot Lemuel and that he stopped him. And Josto is, he, what was he doing? He's so mad, right, that he picks up snow and throws snow, and then he picks up snow and eats snow, and then he spits snow. What's he doing? He's such a paper tiger. He's such a fake tough guy. You want me to bring him in this room? No. So Orietta closes the door to this closet to a teenager, like, oh, don't look in there. Or like, no, well, you're cleaning the house yet. and I leave the apartment. Like, of course you're going to freaking look in there. Well, yeah, but first, though, um... Josto tells Rabbi to find Webb and bring him to the club, and then he gets in his car and drives off. That's important. And then Webb and Deffy are talking to some night watchman, and Webb is obviously leading him to say things that he heard that, or heard from Zelmar and Swanee that they were headed to Chicago, and Webb just wants off this case. And then he pays the guy as he walks him out. And even the guy mocks him. I mean, he's just like, it's completely ridiculous. Webb tries to leave saying goodbye to Deffy, but Deffy hasn't, of course, fallen for any of this. And about that time, Rabbi comes up and signals Webb that he's wanted. And Webb says he has an informant that he has to see. And he tries again to get away, but Deffy offers to drive and he can't figure out a way out of it. Okay, then we go back to the Fada compound and Gatano is taking pictures of all the Canon Enterprises. It's all spread out on the table. And they're talking about the truck being found burned, but they think that the guns were taken to the warehouse first and all that. So did you have anything to say? What do you think about this war council? This Gaetano, like who's on who's on the so, who's on what side? Like it's Gaetano, Rabbi, uh, violent eBay, constant <laughs> calamity, and a couple other sh- schmoes. Well, 
well, it's not Rabbi. Rabbi came in with Fada, with uh, Josto. But, um, yeah, it's Gitano and Kalamita, and then the other guy, the shorter guy. And that's the only ones that were in there that were on that side. Ibal was in there, but Ibal had just found out about it. We find out. But Josto comes in, and he's firing a gun in the house at his brother. And Gitano pulls a knife, and Josto's, like, mocking him. This is a gunfight. Boom. You know, boom. He keeps, like, bang, pulling the trigger. Josto asks who all was in on this, and Ibal was there, and he says he just found out from the um, consigliere. And Josto tells Calamita that he was lucky that Rabbi was there, or he'd be cutting his throat with a can of cat food. So you're right. He he is definitely... Um, he, he talks big. So did Josto grow in stature for you in this episode or look dopier? He looked dopier to me. Oh, see, I th- I totally think he grew. I, th- I think he showed some muscle that he'd never shown. He's still go- a goofball. I mean, he's still fighting the Steve Carell, <laughs> um, you know, look. but he's he's And he's goofy, but he grew a lot in this episode to me. He stood up to Gaetano, and he, he backed him down. Yeah, I didn't... I, he stood up to Gaetano, but Gaetano pulled a knife on somebody with a gun. How much respect do you have to have for somebody to do that? Gaetano doesn't respect him. I mean, he just respected the gun. I didn't think he grew at all. And then he pitches a fit here in a little while. And, and, he's, and he's already pitched a fit. And like I said thrown snow and got another snowball and taken a bite and it's just ridiculousness. Well, he's a goofball leader of this Italian gang. What do you think about the mix of uh, how important it is to have a super violent guy and a super strategy guy? I think I think that's of I think that's beneficial to uh, to like a government or to a crime operation where you got to have a mix where they talk it over and they balance it out and they say, wait, we can't really just rush in and kill everybody. And the other guy says, well, we need to show that we have a, the ability to fight back. You know, it's a it's a balancing act. Well, I think a lot of what we're seeing is the people who want to pretend, like we've talked about already in this episode, um, they want to pretend to be a certain way. And then there's the people who are the certain way. Gatano is that way. Josto's pretending to be that way. Gatano will start a war. Josto wants people to think he will start a war, and he might, but he just does not have the same, I don't even know the word for it, as Gatano. Yeah, but I think Josto really stood up in this episode. See, he, he would have killed Gaetano. If Gaetano tried to move on him, he would have shot him and killed him. Well, he, he put the gun to his crotch. It right? would have killed him, though. And he, and he dares him. And he's standing there. He looks just like Michael Scott being serious, going, going, do it. Do it. Do it. You know, it was so, I mean, it was, it was comical. But Gatano does back down because, you know, a guy and a gun in his crotch, I guess. And the Josto crew leaves. And then Gatano tries to pick a fight with his own little guy who tries to sue them. Gatano's just a hothead. I don't know why anybody could... Can you imagine working, like, with him? You can never do anything right. Okay, erstwhile, Weth and Deffy are pulling up at Joplin's, which is the 
FADA headquarters, and Daffy offers to go with Weff, but Weff declines. And just as Weff is going inside, Gitano comes out looking all mad about his encounter that he just had. And Daffy gets out and asks him what's going on upstairs. Gambling? Prostitution? And he just says it like, I mean, he sounds like um, Andy Griffith saying it or something, right? What's going on up there? Gambling? Prostitution? It's just... No, but he doesn't say prostitution, right? He says gambling, booze, pud tugging. Yeah. Well, Michelle, you got to throw that flavor in there. That's freaking the beauty of the show. I think people, Mike, you're being mean to me. Oh, no. I think I think people um, that are listening have probably. Is there prostitution it. going on in there? No, there's pud tugging. Come on, it's more colorful. Okay. Did you have to Google what that meant? I would have never known. No, I knew what it meant. No, because wow. what he said, Jessica, that's not what he... He didn't say, is there pug tugging? That's he what, said, um... What's his name say? He, what he said was, if a man needed his pug tug, tugged, is this the place for said tugging? Oh, okay. So you could kind of, you know, it wasn't just pug tugging, you know. So, yeah. no. Timothy Oliphant, is, he's like the justified sheriff and he was in Deadwood. He's a perfect old school sheriff type guy and he's in this and he's the guy that said that. Okay. Is this the place where said pug, pud would be tugged? Said pud. So. He's a Mormon, he's a Mormon priest uh, on top of all this being a sheriff, so. Okay. He, he won't even drink caffeine. He he does not partake of caffeinated beverages, either hot or cold. So, Gatano advances on him, and Calamity comes out and diffuses that situation, and then Deffy tells him a story while he's eating his carrot sticks, because I think that's all the guy eats. And the story is about the Italians when they came to Salt Lake, where he's from, and tried to make their sons junkies and their daughters whores, but they dissuaded them with ropes and horses, and they must have dragged them five or, or six or seven miles before their heads popped off. And then he stands there and kind of lets that story sink in. And then he goes, "I'll be waiting on my friend in the car." And he right. So do you think they do? You, okay, we already know that Deffy's prejudiced, right? Because he called he called Italians previously spaghetti eaters. So do you think do you think they railed these Italians out of town for just being Italian, or do you think they really did something criminal? Because I, I get the impression he just says, well, all Italians are criminals, so if any Italians came to Salt Lake City, we we tied their necks up and dragged them with horses until their heads popped off. We see a whole lot of discrimination against everybody from everybody else. It seems like the only people that you're not seeing any discrimination against in these uh, episodes are just Caucasians. Everybody else is discriminated, and they do use very derogatory language about all the different um, groups, ethnic groups. So. Well, it's funny because if you're an Italian immigrant in 1950, you're a, you're one of them Italians. But now, if you're an Italian person in America in 2020, you're white. You know, all the all those groups, the Irish. There's the Irish, the Jewish, the Italians, but those are just white people now. You don't call you don't call a white Irish guy an Irishman. You call him a, a Caucasian. I hadn't thought about that. That's kind of the message I think that eventually everybody kind of m- melds into one thing. 
this is only like what 70 years ago though we're not talking about you know tons and tons of time ago okay anyway inside Ebal is telling Wef that they're trying to avoid war and he needs to help them he wants Wef to go to the cannons and tell them that they aren't just fighting them, that they're also fighting City Hall and the cops and all that. He's trying to really keep a lid on this stuff. And this is where Josto tells the ball that he has to go to New York, kiss the ring, tell them they have everything under control, and bring back the guys. And Ibal, you know, is smart and says, well, which one do you want me to do? Do you want me to tell them everything's under control? Or do you want me to bring back some guys? He says, because they're going to know everything's not under control if I need guys. Right. We just sent you 300 guns. Now you want guys. But everything's under control. But you want more guys now, too, in addition to 300 guns. And you're telling me everything's under control. And this is where Josto loses his temper. He's like, he's got his back. He's like swiveled around in that chair that's really tall. And he like swivels back around. and And he bangs his fists on the table. And he, you know, he says... Why does everybody think they have a right to debate me and and just you know knock stuff off the table? He just he's a child. Yeah, it's kind of a harumph moment. Harumph! I'm turning my back on you. Spins his chair around. Yeah, well, I mean, but yeah, it's it's toddler-ish and his behavior, like spitting the snow and holding a weapon to somebody's crotch. I mean, it's just it's just juvenile scene. I mean, not, I don't know, a weapon to a crotch is juvenile, but you know what I mean. Okay, so then we go back to Orianna Mayflower's house, and Ethel Rita, she's dancing, she's doing all these domestic duties and listening to French music, and then, of course, she's going to decide to check out the room that Orianna told her never mind about. And she hesitates for just a moment, but then she opens the door, and she finds all the medication in there, the laudanum, the Ipecac, um, iodine, everything in there almost just poison or... Uh, um, you know, there's laxatives, and then the cat sneaks in there, and the cat goes to knock over a bottle, and Orietta catches it, but as she catches it, she knocks a box to the floor, and this box is full, full, stuffed full of newspaper obituaries. Yeah, so first, so good to go back a little bit. I put okay. Ethel Rita was um, dancing around and listening to music like Gail Bedecker was in Breaking Bad. To that wacky, goofy yeah, news yeah. while he was cooking his dinner. That's she's right. she's kind of getting into it. It's, it is kind of goofy-ish music, right? And it's it's also this episode was very France-centric, so this was some sort of French song. Um, and but there's France that came up a couple other times in this episode too, like the the very first scene when um, Ethel Rita saw the ghoul in the at the stairway. Mm-hmm. We saw some stuff in her room, and one of the things we saw in her room was the um, Statue of Liberty, you know, a gift from France to the U.S. Well, she's, she's learning French. She's learning Maybe French, the right. French music. Um, the, the two outlaw lesbians are in a, what, um, Paris, gay yeah, Paris new, hotel? New, new Paris hotel or something. Yeah, yeah, so there's something related to France in this all, too, in addition to the ghosts and ghouls. Okay. And then also when she saw the music, when the music, or when she saw the poison, the music stopped, dead, dead stopped. Yeah, well, it started skipping first, remember? 
and it like skipped and it kept playing the same thing over and it would like scratch and go back and over and those of us who are old enough to remember like real records and how that did back that's I mean that that would happen and it would like scratch and then jump back to a part and scratch and jump back to a part and yes it did it just as she went in there which was kind of supernatural and then it just scratched and was done right when she realized that these things in these bottles were poison that's when it stopped yeah. And then she finds those new, the different news articles. Well, she lays her notebook and her pen down to pick up all this stuff. And this is where she finds the trinkets and the keepsakes, and um, including the ring from the elder father that Orietta had just killed. And then she finds an ID bracelet with the name of a man in the obituary. So one of the obituary names that fell out, she finds a... ID bracelet with his name on it. And then she starts to look around. Okay, what was with all the military paraphernalia? Well, a lot of the people she cared for were probably veterans. Okay, you think that's just what it was? Or I, think it, I think was it was veteran? all an assemblage of trinkets of her. So, Jessica, this Munchausen nurse keeps, she kills people and keeps jewelry and Medals and rings. She keeps the and, keepsake of some. some and then she keeps the news article about them passing away unexpectedly. Very serial killer like. Yeah. And she goes to their funeral. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So rituals and keepsakes. So it's very serial killer. Because right. she was the, their nurse. So see, she has like an out, right? Right. Oh, I, t- I cared for them. It doesn't look too strange for her to show up. So. Do you think Oria or uh, Ethel Rita knows at this point what's going yeah, on? Yeah, totally. Cl- I even typed it. It clicks for her. She packs up really quick. When she sees that ring, and she grabs and takes that ring. Yeah, what the hell is she doing? When this nurse, Jessica, when she killed this one guy she that we talked about, she she and he called her murderous, don't kill me. He knew. Somehow he knew telepathically that she was not caring for him. Because she could have been just shooting some medicine into his IV. He knew, somehow he knew Michelle something. And he calls her murderous. Yeah, I think he knew he was dying. When well, she he knew he mind. knew um, some sort of message other than just, hmm, I wonder what she's doing to my IV. He knew it was like evil. He sensed something. Anyway, so that guy, when he dies, she takes his ring and she like sucks his finger and, pu- and takes the ring off with yeah. her mouth. And that's the ring that she keeps th- it's this, this young girl who's seeing all this, Ethel Rita, keeps it as a keepsake or whatever, evidence, keepsake. What do you think, Michelle? I don't have any I, 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 crazy. It's, it's, it's um, so dangerous the game she's playing. It clicks for her, though, that this Orietta is not doing something right. It's not just, oh, this is a cool ring. I'll keep it. I'll steal it from this closet. She's, like, keeping it for a reason. No, she knows something's up. She definitely knows something up. I'm not 100% sure she knows that she's killed these people, but she knows something's up. Of course she does. Come on. She's reading articles about them being dying... No. And seeing poison. What do you think she's thinking? No, it does not say anything about them dying of poison. Well, what do you think she's thinking? What do you think's happening to Michelle? Well, I mean, you I can just... I am being mean to her now. Cause... <laughs> we have just poisons okay. and keepsakes and obituaries. Like, that Baby, kind of... But there's no... 
the, in, in the obituary, it says nothing about so how So what do you died. think, Michelle? What do you think she's thinking? I think, I don't, I think she thinks something's up. I don't know that she knows that she's killed them. What I think is, you know, a nurse could certainly take a trinket from a bedside of everybody she cares for, whether she had anything to do with their killing them. Yeah, or I not. say she totally knows, and this clicks for her. Okay. Well, I mean, she might, because she's very smart. But, and she, but she definitely knows something's up. The phone rings, it breaks her trance where she's there. She jumps up, scoops everything up, but she leaves her freaking notebook and pen in that room and leaves the house. And I also noted that she also left the record going. And I don't know how that's going to matter. Well, that shouldn't anyway. matter. Why would that matter? She's cleaning up. She left the record because going. Because or Orietta will know that she left maybe in a hurry or something. Eh, maybe. Or she's just sloppy and she left. Uh, she doesn't know how a record player works. She's a poor black kid. I don't know. I think she knew how. I, uh, yeah. She's. I, I mean, she left her notebook in the closet. She shouldn't have been in. That's the. That's the killer it, evidence. It is, but I just think that maybe the record skipping could lead Orietta in there. I don't know. But anyway, okay. So Rabbi is leaving the store, and he's accosted by the Cannon family, and he tells them the truth. He said he he won't say anything against the Fadas, but he says he was just protecting Lloyd's boy. He tells him. And then he tells them that he tells Satchel that he'll be dead or in jail if he doesn't come back every time he leaves. And I thought that that was so touching to me. This guy who was left, he wants to be somebody who doesn't just leave these kids. I really like this guy, and I'm really afraid he's not going to be long for the world. What do you think? I think because we are kind of, we like him a lot and we're afraid for him that I think he will survive. I think somebody else, we haven't really seen a major death in this thing yet, except for Donatello, but that was like, we hardly knew him and didn't really. That was the first episode, right? So I don't think it's Rabbi. I think Rabbi lives on to do more and more in this season, but I hope he does anyway. I do too. He looks sad. He just looks sad. I don't know. And also, I think we might find out something more that we don't know. Um, Lloyd's kind of taunting him about, we know what you did. Uh, how did it feel to kill your own father or something like that? And Rabbi says, you know nothing. And of course, they showed us the same thing that Lloyd's just said. I think there might be more to that story. I think there really might be more to it than just he was traded twice. But I don't know. But we'll see, I guess. Um, Lloyd also, Lloyd doesn't know what to do. Lloyd cuts him because he has to figure out, like, okay, you mess with Lemuel, and I know you're watching Satchel. Lemuel and Satchel are this guy Lloyd's sons. It's like, you mess with them, and you're going to get eaten by pigs. I'll make sure you die a horrible death. He well, yeah, has to a- do that. He has to send that message. But he's uncertain. Lloyd, to me, seems and sounds uncertain. I think he believes him. First of all, I think Lloyd, unlike Josto, I think Lloyd is a great leader. I think he is a great judge of character. And I think he's smart. 
And I think he senses, and I think he sensed way back when, that Rabbi is taking really good care of his son. And he asks Rabbi here to bring his son, and they'll be even. And Rabbi says, can't do it. And then he offers him $5,000, which, back in 1950, that's enough to escape, you know? But Rabbi won't do it. Why wouldn't he do it? Because he's loyal. He's a, he's a good soldier. Okay. I, there, there might be something more to his story. I don't know. Maybe. But, um... Okay, so... The, let me see. I've kind of talked about a bunch of stuff. i got to skip. kind of skipping over my notes. Um... Well, Etherita in the closet no, okay. sees the news about Donatello and his ring. Like she, she, she knows that she knows what Orietta did to Donatello. Yeah, I don't that think Michelle, so. she has to know that Orietta's killing these people. And there's not one thing about the ring, Mike. The ring's not mentioned in the obituary. The fact that she got the ring, and that's not even the obituary. I don't think that she took home with her. She took the obituary home of the guy with the bracelet. I think. I don't know. I think you're jumping the gun, maybe. You might be right. You've been right about it. No, she had all these signs point to her knowing. If if she can't just leave this closet like, wow, that was weird. I'm going to keep this ring, though, because it's cool. She knows. She's a smart... How can she know? There's no... Because she she sees these people have been have died unexpectedly. She sees poison on the shelf and she finds their jewelry. Okay, she might know that. I'm giving you that. I'm not convinced of it, but she might. Why does she have jewelry? Why has she stolen other people's jewelry? I'm not saying you're wrong. I think she suspects it and she may, it may have really clicked with her, but there's no way she could connect that ring with Donatello. Well, maybe, maybe not. I can't remember what exactly was evidence about the ring being Donatello's ring. Nothing. And it was in a completely separate box with all the other trinkets. There's no way. Alright, I'll have to go and rewatch that. But she does keep that one trinket out of all those, you know, hundreds of trinkets in that closet. I know. I don't understand why she did that. Because, like I said, I don't even think the obituary was Donatello's obituary. I could be wrong, but I think it was the guy with the bracelet. But let me ask you about this, since we're on the... Why did we go back to Orietta? I mean, to Ethelreda. Was there something you wanted to... Because I have in this sequence on my notes that this is where she reads the news about Donatello. Yeah, no, but first, we're not done with this other scene, and this is important. What happened, what was going on when Rabbi held his hand up beside Louie's head and said, Mommy... What was that? Yeah, I don't know. That was something really weird, too. And also, Loy is asking who's calling the shots over there. And Rabbi isn't talking. He won't tell him anything. Yeah, the ape or the pipsqueak. So I think that's important. Okay, and then, right, we're back at the Smutty House, and Ethel Reed is reading the obituary she took with a flashlight in the bed and looking at the ring, and we hear that water drip, drip, dripping. Or maybe it's not water. Maybe it's the blood dripping, the body fluids dripping, because that's what they keep showing when they show that dripping, is the bucket underneath the mortuary table, so. Okay, then this scene. Now, this creeped me out. I was in the house by myself. I did not like this. We're in the hotel, and Zelmar is literally laundering the cash 
that Swanee threw up on. And she's like laundering it in the bathtub and she's smelling it to make sure she got the vomit stench off of it. Swanee's groaning in the bed and Zelmar's like talking very soothing to her. And then I made a note, I'm like, what is going on? It's like time stands still, right? Because we have Zelmar not moving at this little makeshift clothesline she's done. And we have a shot in the bathroom behind the tub of someone rising all the way out of the tub, like with above, right, levitating above the tub, dripping. And then we see the covers being pulled back off of Swanee by nothing at all. And then Swanee is being rained on and she's shivering. And then something nasty starts falling on her face. It wasn't rain anymore. And Zelmar is standing right in the room and she has her eyes closed and there's like wind blowing in her face. And yeah, I think Zelmar, Zelmar, Jessica is the aunt of Ethelreda. Okay. And so, when Ethelreda's not so terribly surprised, Michelle, about this guy in the stairs, she's like, oh, God, he's scary, but I know I've always known he's been there, and I guess there he is again. She's not terribly, terribly shocked and scared by it. Right. Same with uh, Zelmar here. It's like, oh, well, guy, she didn't even really see the guy come out of the tub, but a lot of ghostly things happened here. The guy rises up out of the water that she was just looking in that tub washing those dollar bills. She would have seen a guy in there if there was really a guy in there. Yeah, they shut well. <laughs> and then the and then the rain, it's raining inside the room. And then the blanket pulls back by itself. That's all ghostly stuff. And then the rain turns into some sort of a muddy, bloody type. Mucky, yeah. Not just water. And then there's also a breeze. The the dollar bills hanging to dry are blowing in the room. Yes, yeah, and, and Zelmar's hair is blowing. And, and she and she is not like holy shit. I am freaked out by this. She's just like, oh well, this is how it is. But then she goes to Swanee, and she like it's like she's afraid she's dead, and she starts shaking her. She's really rough with her, and we think she's dead. For I thought she was dead for a moment. And then she sits up and then just vomits again. Just so she wasn't. So I put is Sawani bur- purged by this vomit because then the guy leaves. The evil guy was the evil guy somehow baked into the pie and she ate the pie and then when she vomited, she finally vomited enough of it out that she got rid of this ghost. That she got I, rid of this haunting. I don't. I didn't get any of that. Because remember, just... people are haunted, not things, not houses. Like, like, um, Orietta baked this evil into this pie and it was consumed by Sawani, and then she had this evil in her until she vomited enough of it out and then it left. And that's when the guy left. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was Ipecac. That's pretty evil, but I don't know. Well, why did the guy leave? Why did the guy appear and then just leave without doing any mischief? Maybe he killed her, and maybe she's not. Maybe she's going to be one. No, she's better. Well, she's not better. We don't see her better. Yeah, we do. When she's like, uh, she shakes her awake, like, "Oh, are you dead? Are you dead?" And then she's like, she moves and she sits up and she's better. No, Mike. She moves and she sits up because her she's vomiting so violently that it throws her off the bed. 
All right. Well, I took I inter interpreted that she was better after being sick, and then this guy left, and this bat this evil in her belly, and in the room with the guy. You know, she it left her. I don't know. I mean, I didn't see anything left, but you, like I said, you've been right on more things in this than I have. But then, see, we see Zelmar. She gets in the car with Thurman, and she and um. She's demanding to know about the pie and who made the pie, and she's giving him this stinky cash. She knows it's the pie, and he wants to know where the cash came from, how much it is, why it smells funny, and Zelmar tells him it's best just not to ask questions. And they talk about Debrell and how if he loves, if how if if you love someone, there's nothing that that she won't do, that Debrell won't do. And best not to tell her about the money, just pay the man back and say bygones and go on. And Zelmar tells her that Debrell will get over it. And she says, the only thing we don't get over is being dead. And by the way, they're staying at the New Paris until Swanee gets uh, better for a day or two. And tell Ethelreda that she's proud of her and for her not to let anyone cut in line. Kind of some weird stuff to be saying. Right, and that registered with me because of that jackass at the ATM that time. That was the worst <laughs> crime than pulling a gun on me. But don't let anyone cut cut. Don't let any sorry. Don't let no sorry ass cut in front of her in line. Any line in her whole life, like not just now, but any time in her life. Like that's the profound message. Like if you're if you're a intelligent young black woman, don't let anyone cut you off because you're you know you could be first in line. I think that's pretty wise stuff. Then we go to Lloyd, and he's peeling some oranges absentmindedly while all the kids, including Zero, are playing. When Lemuel comes in and says there's a white man at the door, he has to say it a bunch of times to even get Lloyd's attention. And it's Thurman there to pay him back. And we see him like he's trying to drink water, and he's shaking water everywhere. He has to have a napkin underneath it to hold it. He's shaking so hard. He's got the money from his dear Uncle Booley, who passed away last week. And Lloyd's all skeptical and says, so Uncle Booley left you a bag of cash. And Thurman says, no, it was in check form, but I thought this would be easier for you. And Lloyd makes a comment about, you're the first white man who's ever tried to make things easier for me or whatever. But, um... Louie's like sitting there looking, he's really skeptical and just like, and he does this. He's, this is not the first time he like, you know, looks at him and he's sitting there, it's all tense. And then he, the mood just changes. The moment passes and he says, okay, well, thanks for stopping by. And Thurman's scared, but he leaves and it's really awkward leaving and all that. And then Louie picks up the money and he looks at it and then he sniffs it. And when he sniffs it, he smells something. Then it dawns on him that this is the money that was vomited on in the heist at his own business. He was By paid back with his own money. Yeah. But now he's going to think they're in on it. This is bad. This is really bad. Yeah, I don't think so. I think he's going to realize that this stupid Thurman mortuary runner is not wise enough of a leader to rob Lloyd's Syndicate and get the money and then pay it right back to him. He was kind of duped. It. Everyone knows Thurman's a dupe. So I don't disagree with that. But he, I mean, it's really bad that he got that money because they're going to want to know where he got well, it. Well, of course from. they are. But it's going to it's going to connect back to uh, the 
the sister and not to Thurman and his wife. Yeah, but in Lloyd's too smart to think, oh, he this this dope of a mortuary guy orchestrated this robbery and got this money. He, you know, he's a doofus and Lloyd knows it. He may yes. not know it right well, now. He's suspicious right now, but he's going to figure it out. I agree, but it's, I still don't think it's going to bode well for Thurman. I'm yeah, it's it. not going to bode well for the who's the who's the girlfriend of Sawani. That uh, girl Zellmer. and yeah. and Swanee. Zelmar and Swanee are going to get the wrath of Loy, not Thurman. But this was so sad. This like kind of broke my heart. Okay, Ethelred is setting the table. Debrell's pulling supper from the oven. Thurman comes in. He's whistling. He dances Debrell around. He proposes to her again, and she's like smacking him away. And then he pulls out some alcohol, and Ethelred gets a pop. Jessica, that's a Coke, a pop. <laughs> and uh, I know Clayton they, likes to pretend like he's northern. <laughs> and they go to do a toast. And Thurman's uh, saying that they're out, he did it, and DeBrell's face falls. And I made a note here. Some of these characters are really looking like boobs in this. Thurman and Josto, I think they both just look like boobs. DeBrell understands the seriousness of what's just happened. She keeps saying, what did you do? And he finally says, whatever he did, it's done. And she walks away. Ethel Rita goes to hug her dad. Thurman says, she'll be all right. This will all blow over soon, which are famous last words. And then we fade to black. I don't think he, I think he may be the victim of like ancillary violence, but Lloyd's not going to come after Thurman. He's going to come after somebody else. And Thurman may be damaged, collateral damage because of that. But Thurman's a tertiary fourth character in Loy's anger in this, I think. But we'll see. I mean, I think he stands a good chance. Look, he's the one who borrowed the money. He's the one who's into him for the debt. I think um, it's not going to bode well for the Smutney household, period. Because the money was stolen and paid back by this guy. What would you do if you were Lloyd, Michelle? Oh, not Lloyd, Loy. What would you do? Would you would you take your wrath out on the Smutney family, or would you dig deeper and figure it out? Well, I mean, obviously, I, Loy. First of all, I cannot put my mind into a 1950. Um, Come on, just what would you do if you knew? What would you do if you knew the whole truth? If you okay. were Loy. Well, I mean, if you knew the truth, I, I don't know. I think Josto would act ir- irrationally. I don't think Lloyd's going to act irrationally. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. If Lloyd knew the whole truth, and he's so smart, I think he will eventually know the whole truth. He's going to go, you, you freaking idiot, Thurman. You, why did you do this? You knew it was wrong. You're giving me back my own money. But he's not going to direct his main wrath at Thurman and his wife. No, I'm not saying he's going to direct main wrath. I just think that they're in for a mess now, all because of the pie that Orietta made with the Ipecac that caused Swanee to vomit on that money. If that hadn't happened, this would be over. So it all goes back to her. It's like she knew. Well, partially, because Thurman still owed Loy the money. If, if Thurman didn't come across this windfall, he would still be in debt to Loy, and if he didn't pay him back, there may be some bad consequences to that. No, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, 
if Swanee hadn't vomited on that money, Thurman could be completely out of it. And they'd, all, they'd have all gotten away. But because Swanee vomited on that money, that's the problem. Well, yeah, but that's that's, that's the of, story. That's part of the story. And all that's because of Orietta. If Thurman never borrowed the money, he wouldn't have a problem, too. But that's not the story, though. The story is about her vomiting on it and why... Yeah, you're right. The story is Ethelita or um, Orietta causing this turmoil that puts everybody at odds with each other. She's the she's the wild card who causes conflict with people. But to what? But we still have no idea to what end. No, and I'm wondering what kind of conflict she's going to end up causing with Josto because I think that's where that's going to go. But that's that's just my prediction at this point. Mike, you know that Jessica and I did um, a podcast, or maybe more than one, didn't we, Jessica, on uh, Orange is the New Black? Way yeah, back? we did three or four, I think. Yeah. So. She's not a complete novice at this. And, Jessica, you and your friend are thinking about um, doing a podcast, and you've got a whole lot of it set up. What's what's your interest in what um, kind of things were you thinking about podcasting? Because it's not TV shows like Mike and I do. No, I'm true crime. I like following true true crime uh, events as they come out. Yeah. That's my that's my shtick. It started with Chris Watts, and it's been a snowball ever since. Well, that'll be really cool if y'all um, when y'all get that up and running, we'll be sure to tell everybody about it and uh, link to it and let let them know. Hey, well, thanks. Jessica Fargo is a true story, and the names were changed to protect the <laughs> the dead. Oh yeah, that's a Cohn Brothers um, moniker or, or whatever theme. They say it, and it's not really true. Oh. They always say the names. This is a true story. The names were changed to protect the, what, Michelle non-living or... It says, um, yeah, this is a true story uh, out of respect for the dead. The names, the names were changed to protect the, uh, the living, but out of respect for the dead, everything else was told exactly as it occurred. And it's a total lie. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's a all lie. I would hope so. Yeah. After hearing y'all talk, I've never seen it, but that would be uh, mortifying. All right, Michelle. I hope it's more mortifying than Chris Wa- Chris Watts. So. Nothing's more mortifying than Chris Watts. Yeah, that's a pretty mortifying too. We'll have to see if this survives the playback with all the dog barking and stuff. But it was rough on that end. I'm telling you, you know, it's nice and quiet on my end. The birthplace of civilization is 405. Goodness. But okay, I, I the upcoming on these is just so. I mean, I actually like time. It was like twenty three seconds total. It's just nothing. They give you nothing in the upcomings. Jessica, so, you're a you're a history fanatic. What was the birthplace of civilization? I'm a history fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> was it like Egypt or? It's someplace Middle East, right? Sure. Yeah. The or Paris. I mean, Paris, some might call cultural birthplace of culture, Renaissance. But what's the? where's the birthplace of civilization? Jerusalem? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, you're asking the wrong person. I don't know geography. I don't know history. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. That's the next episode. So, Michelle, I'll see you next week on the birthplace of civilization, wherever the heck that is.
We'll see you. It's Mesopotamia, Mark. You don't All trust right. me. Okay, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.